Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Those look good. Where'd you get them? Mm, at the croquette station. There's a croquette station? Yeah, it's sort of between where the wedding stage is and the chicken and waffle truck. Oh, near where you get the specialty cocktails? Yeah. This wedding is amazing. Tell me again how you know these people. Well, my brother taught archery to the younger sister of the bride. And you got invited? Well, our families got to know each other. So I'm the boyfriend of the sister of the bride's sister's archery coach. Yeah, that's right. That must make me the guest with the highest degree of separation. No, because see that woman over there in the low-cut dress? Yeah. Well, she's the date of Carl, who only just started jogging with the groom on weekday mornings about three months ago, and this is only her second date with Carl. She wins. Hey, did you try the teeny tiny grilled cheese sandwich sitting on top of the shot glass of tomato soup? No, I'm getting one of the meatballs with the single strand of spaghetti wound up into a cone-shaped hat. Today on the show, Jen Dahl talks about her wedding book, the return of Mad Men, and the spoiler problem. Also, the blood moon eclipse and Kevin Ollie's speech patterns. And now he's getting up to give another toast, Colin McEnroe. It's actually, I usually don't give toasts at weddings. You might think that I would be the person who gives the toast at the wedding, but I'm actually a little bit, I'm, it's not that I'm toast averse, but I'd wait. I wait and see whether there's a toast that needs to be given. And if there isn't one that needs to be given, then I don't give one. Um, you know, giving that a little bit more thought, that whole intro, too, um, I think actually there's a, there's, there's a person at every big wedding who not only is on his or her first date with one of the guests, but has only been invited, become, is not even going out with that guest, has only been invited because that person does not want to show up unescorted. So that may be the person at any given wedding who has the largest degree of separation. However, I'm not the expert on that. That's Jen Dahl, who's with us right now. She's our super guest on today's Scramble. Let me tell you also what's coming up before we get we plunge into things with Jen. A little bit later, Christine Larson, acclaimed professor of astronomy at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, she's going to explain the Blood Moon Tetrad, which is the name also of the art rock band that uh, John Dankowski had in college. But a Blood Moon Tetrad is actually a series of a certain kind of lunar eclipse. And we're about to have an unusual number of them uh, resulting in the zombie apocalypse, the end of the world, stuff like that. So um, all of that. And then uh, there's been some writing recently about the way that Kevin Ollie talks. He's a basketball coach with an unusually vivid and powerful use of language. I think you could make the case that he's one of the more articulate uh, basketball coaches. But he also speaks uh, in, in a style of English that's sometimes called black English. Uh, and he's coming to some criticism for that, or at least some people raising questions about it. We want to have a conversation about that. Um, this man who really is uh, a very vivid and powerful speaker. Uh, but there's some people they just don't like the way he talks. So we'll talk about that later. Jen Dahl is with us. She uh, is an acclaimed, fresh and exciting voice. Uh, I just read that on Amazon.com. Uh, Jen Dahl writes for all kinds of publications, The Atlantic, The Hairpin, Mental Floss, the New York Magazine, New York Times Book Review, her first book, Save the Date, The Occasional Mortifications of a Serial Wedding Guest, is out May 1st. We're going to come to that in just a second uh, and talk a bit about the book. But before we do that, Jen Dahl, welcome back to our show. Hi. Thanks and, for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you. So one of the things that you do, and this has become sort of 
um, a, a massive journalism industry now is to uh, recap TV shows and, and analyze TV shows. And pr- probably Mad Men is one of the most, if not the most, analyzed TV shows. There are many sites that devote considerable time and space uh, to talking about each episode, often with um, critics and writers kind of going back and forth, talking among themselves uh, about it. So um, that's something that you've done in the past, and you're doing it this year for Hairpin? Yes, I am. My first post went up, uh, I think, at noon today. So first post, first premiere, or the episode that came out last night, um, it's all up there, and people are talking about it. All right, so we're at the beginning of the home stretch of Mad Men. This is a, sort of the final season. I think it's only about seven episodes, right? I think so, yeah. It's a short one. And then I think we get another. I might be wrong, actually. Maybe it'll there just keep on going. But who knows? Uh, yeah. But, yeah, so anyway, we're, he, Matthew Weiner is more or less in the process of starting to try to try to wrap this story up, a story that— actually spans a longer period of time than I think I would have initially have guessed. I didn't realize. I mean, last night's episode, I think, has to be 1969 or so. So we really, really yeah. have been through a lot of years with, with this show now. Yes, definitely. Lots of changes. Um, we saw Nixon in the episode that was on last night. So uh, it's January 1969. And um, first of all, for we won't do any spoilers. We're going to talk about spoilers uh, <laughs> later. We won't do any spoilers. But for you, what were the salient issues jumping up last night? Are there things that obviously this is kind of an exposition episode. It's the beginning uh, of a seasonal arc. Uh, so there aren't going to be massive developments, but there are going to be hints about what right. the themes are. So what hints did you find? Well, when we left um, at the end of season six, there was kind of this intimation that Peggy might be kind of falling into Don's um, footsteps and becoming the person who's really in charge. But this episode, we see that uh, there's some developments there that are not exactly going the way Peggy wants them to go. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler because I'm not going to say specifically what happens. But um, we also left Don and Megan with Megan moving to L.A. to start her film career or her TV career. And in this first episode, we see them back together, still trying to make it work. Um, Don heading out to L.A. And that relationship clearly is in some trouble, which we knew from, you know, season six, too. But we I I think it's like a slow Mad Men has always had a pretty slow pacing and development. Mm. And I think we're getting hints at things that are going to progress over the episodes that we're we, we never really get one thing all at once it feels like mm. uh so there's there's slow stuff and it's also hard to say what weiner is necessarily doing because he tends to trick us um we we think one thing and then it changes right well let me just paint, try to paint in slightly broader strokes too for people who haven't followed the series at all or haven't followed it all that carefully so madman sets a couple of different groups uh, in opposition or at least in care, comparison to one another uh, uh one one set of sort of dichotomies is the dichotomy between creative people and business people. Uh, Don Draper and his protege Peggy uh, are the epitomes of creative people. They think creatively. Now, they're thinking creatively about sun-kissed commercials and, uh, and, and watch ads and stuff like that, as opposed to writing gigantic novels or, you know, engaging in performance art. But they're the creatives. And they, they try to think about excellence, about their own vision of excellence. They are constantly set at loggerheads with people who 
think about money and accounts and things like that. Sometimes these goals dovetail with one another, and sometimes these orientations, as I say, are are going head-to-head. It seems to me the other two groups that are set uh, in comparison to and sometimes um, in uh, in antipathy with one another are men and women. And I, to me, this is the most interesting thing about this series, which started in the early 60s and now is to, into the late 60s. Um, it was very much initially about m- men uh, of a certain type and of a certain generation, men who came out of either World War II or more likely Korea, um, and who were making a lot of money uh, in this for this nascent world uh, in which television and print advertising was sort of giving way to uh, to, to to pure television advertising, um, and and over the course of these seasons and over the elapsing of nine or so years, to me one of the most interesting things is that the men have become not only on the series but in the within the reality of the series less and less relevant and the women have become more and more relevant which is kind of about right really for that period of time mm-hmm. we've seen massive changes you know i mean joan is a partner now and when she started out she was obviously an incredibly uh together head of the secretary pool. Uh, But now she's partner. And the way that that happened has, I'm not going to, if people haven't seen the whole, (laughs) if people haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil that. But um, the way that that came about involves some intense sexual uh, issues and sexism and um, gender roles and all sorts of things. Um, And then Peggy, of course, is sort of the, the up and comer who you see her starting to have uh, a role like Don's role. And Don now is not drinking anymore. There are no more three martini lunches for him, but he's also not in charge in the way that he used to be. So there's a lot of fluctuation in those roles. And yeah, I think the women especially are so interesting because they're changing and it's not a clear path to like this utopian empowerment, it's really hard and there are repercussions for what they do. But with the men, it seems they're a little bit more lost and in flux. Yeah, I think it's about a generation of men who um, were used to being cool when cool meant a highball and a cigarette and a certain kind of suit uh, and moving through the 60s in which there were tremendous changes not only uh, in style but in su- in the substance of American life. And everything right. that they relied on to make themselves cool is kind of dribbling out like sand underneath their feet. And, and, other, and the question is to what degree – uh, are they one of the characters? Roger is chameleon-like in his ability to adapt. He he can he'll never look the part of a hippie or anything like that, but he can adapt to free love and drugs and orgies and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and pl- sort of plausibly, a little bit ridiculously, with his silver hair, uh, trying to right. keep up with these twenty-four-year-old uh, drug-taking free love people. But you know, it, right. it's in his nature too. And with Don Draper, we have this guy who really is an individualist and isn't really interesting of ch- uh, in changing for the sake of change, married to a much younger woman, uh, a woman who's being embraced by, by Hollywood to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess he has to decide, right, how much he is willing to change. Right. Well, and I mean, that's been the through the course of the entire show. Who is Don? Who does Don think he is? Um, what are the things that he clings to as real? Because he too is a chameleon, although a different kind than Roger, and he's faked a lot of what he is. You know, he's created this person. Now I think the moorings are a little bit lost. He doesn't know who he is anymore, and we're getting into the 70s, and he's he's trying to stick with Megan, but it doesn't seem like that's very satisfying. He's kind of at a loss with his job. He's. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see 
who he turns into this season um, if he can if he can get right or if he's going to kind of just at the end of this episode things didn't look wonderful for him so you know uh, one of the ongoing debates about this uh, and it surfaces all the time it's surfaced most recently in a new republic article by mark tracy who's done the very thing that you're doing today here um is about the sort of the nature and quality of the series and i i admit that i've sort of gone back and forth a couple of times sometimes the series seems like this brilliantly curated um take on a period of social change, which is sort of um, sort of glued with wallpaper paste over and, and very 60s wallpaper paste at that uh, over, you know, a kind of standard soap opera um, or or at least over a set of machinations that don't really add up to very much. Who ultimately cares who gets the Sunkist account if that's the big prize at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Um, there's sort of that. But then there are other times at which it really feels like Matthew Weiner is the Henry James of the 1960s, you know, that he really is using the the style of a culture and the dramas of people who in their own right may not be the most dramatic and important people in the world to say profound things about human psychology. And so I'm guessing I know where you come down, but, but come down somewhere on that one. Well, you know, I think that there are arguments to be made about every show that they're not all that we're trying to get out of them. But the same way with girls that you can look at that show, you can look at Mad Men and you can say, no matter what, this is a quality TV show. This is better than a lot of stuff out there. So, yeah, maybe it's over stylized. And, yeah, maybe we're trying to um, we're trying to feel smart by watching it. And so we put a lot of. Uh, emphasis on what it means, and maybe it doesn't always pay off, but I think it pays off more than a lot of things. Yes, there are worse things that you could be watching. So uh, let's add to this conversation before (laughs) before we get to your book, uh, which people should be reading instead of watching television anyway. But um, (laughs) before we get to your book, let's uh, the other thing you and I have been sort of emailing about this morning too is the whole question of spoilers. Now, last night, in fact, there weren't too many spoilers to worry about in Mm -hmm. Mad Men, but there were in Game of Thrones, and increasingly we have this very confused media landscape. And for, first of all, the platforms on which people watch things have become wildly varied from something like Netflix, in which a whole season drops uh, in, in its entirety, 15 or so episodes of House of Cards. You can watch them all in one weekend or, or spread them out, depending on your inclination. Some people watch things on demand. Some th- people catch up. Uh, some people are a season behind. Uh, Mr. Dankowski here is about us. He's two episodes behind. He's finished up season three of Game of Thrones, Uh, but other people are two seasons behind. You never know when you're talking to somebody about Breaking Bad or or The Good Wife or Game of Thrones or True Detective or any of these must-watch series, whether the person's watched the same episode that you've watched, and people become really concerned that you are going to spoil something for them. And they have their own definitions, too, about what a spoiler is. But So how do you—you you, you, yes. you told me you don't really mind spoilers personally I'm that weird. much. I'm weird. I like spoilers um, because, to me, it allows me to relax, and especially in a really tense show. And I admit I haven't watched Game of Thrones mostly because I don't like tense shows, and I know a lot of really scary and bad things happen on that show. I'll tell you one thing. So, the, show, the show would have materially altered your wedding book. But anyway, continue. <laughs> But, you know, a lot of people now are watching TV shows and they're on Twitter at the same time that they're watching TV shows. Mm -hmm. And that's where the water cooler conversation that you might have had when you go into the office the next day and say, did you watch Mad Men? What did you think? Um, That's actually where the real time water cooler conversation is happening. And so part of the fun of watching those shows and being on Twitter 
does involve spoilers because you're talking about what's going on, then for people who don't want to know the spoiler, well, you shouldn't be on Twitter for sure because you're probably going to run into something you don't want to hear. Um, and then with the speed of websites posting their recaps pretty quickly, you do have to kind of walk around very carefully if you're going to avoid spoilers. I think there's – yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, like, the you know, the show – the story isn't about um, – to me, the plot isn't the most important part of a TV show, and I know that that's weird and a lot of people don't think that. Um, I like to see the things happen, and I want to see how they're going to play out, even if I do know what happens. Well, I think also there, there are all kinds of classist issues that come up. I mean, uh, people who don't have a, a full subscription to HBO treat people yeah. who do like they're Russian oligarchs of some kind. <laughs> ah, oh, so you're the kind of jerk who gets the HBO show right when you want it, whenever the premiere is. And then there's, when it comes to Game of Thrones, there's a whole other group of people who have read the books and are openly contemptuous of people who are waiting with bated breath to see what the TV set tells them uh, is the mm-hmm. story. Uh, and and if you go on, on social media with any concerns about what's going on on Game of Thrones, as if it were a freshly baked bread, you will be immediately taunted by these people. So I guess <laughs> we have sort of all kinds of stratifications, right? Right. Well, right. Like what what does happen when you read the book? Is it spoiled for you when you see it play out on TV? I wouldn't think that it would be personally because it's a totally different venue in which you're watching it and different things can be put together in different ways. And I think it would still be exciting, but maybe not. Maybe it's ruined because you know what happens. All right. We got to, uh, for our final topic here with Jen Dahl, we do want to talk about the book that you have coming out. So ex- explain this book. Explain the genesis of this book. This book arises from your own experience. You, yes. like all of us, one of the sort of common threads of humankind is that over the course of a lifetime, we will go to many weddings. Yes. And even more, I think, in contemporary society than we ever have because people get married later and people marry more than once. Um, And it seemed like, you know, I as I was looking back at my life, one of the most common themes uh, at different points when I'm a totally different person was that I was going to weddings, whether I was an eight year old going to my first wedding that I can remember of relatives or a 25 year old going to my first destination wedding of my college best friend or, you know, a wedding where I suddenly have a new boyfriend and I'm bringing him as my date. Um, all the different iterations in which we go to weddings and what that lens of wedding going tells us about ourselves because you don't go to weddings as a blank slate. You don't go to weddings purely invested, unfortunately, maybe, in the bride and groom or whoever's getting married. You know, you're about you, too, and you've got your story that you bring to that scenario. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not so good. Well, you want, so... You, you give us, without doing a spoiler, uh, give us an example right. from the book uh, of a time when your own story was was your story at that wedding. Mm-hmm. Well, overpowered the... I, I, it doesn't overpower necessarily. I think most of the weddings... I've been to have been extremely enjoyable, and I'm very happy for the couples. Um, One sort of funny story is that I was going to a wedding in Jamaica for a good friend of mine who happened to have um, her husband, her husband-to-be, had gone to college with a guy that I'd in uh, 12th grade competed in a debate tournament with, and he beat me. And I didn't think he should have. And so we're in Jamaica, and, I, and I'm and i confronting him, this guy, you know, 20 years later. And 
seeing what's going to happen. So people from your past come up again, you know, when you go to weddings. And, and that can be funny and weird. And that storyline is its own special moment. Yeah, I think there's this intellectual commitment to the notion that the bride and groom are paramount at the weddings. And so and their right. happiness is paramount. It's their special day. Every other possible subsidiary consideration should be relegated to, to, to no status at all uh, in mm-hmm. order for them to have the m- most... Uh, epic possible experience. Right. The problem is nobody ever does it, right? You have about two or three drinks and then suddenly your own issues come up. Oh my gosh. And how can you suppress your emotions in this incredibly emotional moment? Um, the other thing that I think is interesting and what I wanted to get at with this book is the idea that we do all have feelings. We do bring our feelings to these weddings, but weddings aren't just about the couple getting married. They're about the families and they're about the interpersonal relationships between all the people there. You know, whether it's like someone who is kind of this uh, tertiary guest that no one really knows or your best friend is getting married and you're not sure how you feel about her spouse. Um, All of these interrelationships play an incredibly important role in a wedding dynamic. And it's like a wedding has its own sort of ecosystem where these people are, are entwined in each other's lives for a temporary but extremely emotional period of time. Yeah, actually, I think, as was suggested in the intro, that one of the most liberating positions at a wedding is to be that tertiary guest, the the guest with the on, only the most remote uh, connection to the to the bridal party, the person who was invited as a matter uh, of table completion or, or right. some other consideration. You're I mean, like the only person who can have fun. Yeah. <laughs> If you're that guest. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I at least do find that. Well, are you anticipating, and maybe it's already happening, are you anticipating that you are now going to be regarded as a font of information and maybe even <laughs> sort of Solomon-like judgments that you are going to be the Ann Landers slash Amy Dickinson of wedding questions? Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe. You know, I am getting, it's funny, conversations turn to weddings around me inevitably. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why that is, but um, I am getting etiquette questions. I'm not sure I'm always the right person to answer it because if you read my book, a lot of it is admitting to mistakes that I've made at weddings um, and some etiquette disasters. But I guess that's a kind of expertise. Um, You know, you don't want to make the same mistake twice, right? I, I think also, you know, another you know, just to sort of go back to one of the um, your original statement that we go we go to more weddings maybe than than mm-hmm. previous generations did. The ease of travel has also made that. I mean, in other words, you know, if you were at home in in Boston in in 1886 and there was a wedding in Deadwood, I mean, you just didn't go to it. Uh, right. And whereas now people can go anywhere. And so somebody who's I was recently invited to somebody's second marriage, second wedding. Uh, I'm in Connecticut. The wedding is an hour and a half outside of Houston. Um, this would have been an implausible thing to attend. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't even have to explain why you were not attending. Uh, but but in this day and age, right, you, you conceivably might need to go to that wedding. Right. And it's a bigger deal, too. You know, I don't I don't think that weddings had the same sort of uh, blow the top off, make it the most unique experience possible, uh, you know, spend all the money that you can possibly spend, $40,000, $150,000, you know, these crazy price tags. Um, that wasn't what weddings were like in the old days. And, and so now both you can go to a destination wedding in the Dominican Republic or Jamaica or wherever it happens to be, and the cost of going is something that you look at and think, well, do I want to do this? Is this worth it? 
if I don't go, am I no longer friends with these people? Am I no longer part of their life? Um, so everything is like a little more fraught, I think. And uh, there's that possibility to go, but also the cost is can be kind of crazy. Another thing that you did, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon, Jen Dahl, but another thing you did was research wedding traditions. This turned into a piece for, oh, yeah. for mental <laughs> floss. Um, so a lot of things that you would have thought were maybe just really deeply ingrained in the notion of a wedding are newer than one might have expected, right? For example, the white, yes. w- white wedding dress is not that new. Exactly. Um, that was Queen Victoria wearing it. And, and there had been white wedding dresses before, but she was the one who really put it on the map as an important thing to do. Um, I also love that the bridesmaids, there was like a lot of uh, trying to ward off evil spirits and uh, and prevent the bride who was considered the lucky one from being maybe kidnapped by another groom or, you know, stolen. So the bridesmaids had to wear the same dress as the bride to confuse people, uh, which is confuse evil spirits, which is um. kind of... We should also say that Queen Victoria was, I believe, the first person ever to say, all the single ladies, put your hands up, up in the club. (laughs) I think that was, I think that's uh, credited to her. Listen, Jen Dahl, it was great to talk to you. We can't wait for May 1st when, in fact, this book, Save the Date, The Occasional Mortifications of a Serial Wedding Guest, comes out. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been fun. We'll be back. All right, you may have encountered the notion uh, of the blood moon, uh, the lunar eclipse, and uh, we've got not only one of them coming, but really four of them coming. Uh, we wanted to know what this means and how it's possible, and, and even for those of us who are who, who didn't take an excellent astronomy course taught by someone like Christine Larson at Central Connecticut State University, how a lunar eclipse actually works. I, I always know within, with eclipses that they represent the interposition of something in between the path of the sun and something else. Uh, but other than that, I'm kind of clueless. So anyway, she's the recipient of the 2013 Walter Scott Houston Award from the Northeast Region of the Astronomical League for service to astronomy, education, and outreach. She's going to perform more of that service right now on this show. Christine Larson, good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, Colin. And you did give us a spoiler that there's an eclipse tonight. Right, there's an eclipse tonight, and the world will not end also. That's that, the other spoiler. That is also a spoiler, yeah. yeah. So there's an eclipse tonight, and so when we say there's a lunar eclipse, uh, and that it's actually sometimes called a, a blood eclipse because of the, the redness of it, what, what event are we talking about? What's actually happening up there in the sky? Well, we're talking about the sun, the earth, and the moon lining up in a very particular way so that the earth is in the middle, and it's casting a shadow on the moon. And and so is is that does that explain the whole blood part of this the redness part of it is it is the light passing through the Earth's atmosphere is that what's making the redness right we block out with the body of the Earth most of the sunlight that would reach the moon but a little bit of sunlight in particular the red part of the sunlight sneaks through our atmosphere and illuminates the moon hence making it blood red now. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask how often this happens, but that's actually kind of a complicated question, right? It doesn't happen exactly with the same frequency all the time. Right. Uh, on average, we get about two lunar, two lunar eclipses a year, but not all lunar eclipses are created equal. 
Sometimes the shadow of the Earth just grazes the moon. Sometimes we get the outer part of the shadow and you don't really see much going on. And so this is really great because we get four total lunar eclipses in a row over the next two years. Um, and so and how, how spaced out will they be? Well, we have one tonight. We have one October 8th. We have one next April 4th and another one next September 28th. And so tonight's, uh, I, I'm hearing cloud cover and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. is there any hope we'll be able to see this thing? Yeah, I, I'm not holding out a whole lot of hope, but you know how the weather goes in New England. So I'd say that if you're up around 3 in the morning, look out the window and cross your fingers. And you may have already said this, but as I was trying to, struggling to absorb all this new information, I might have missed it. How, this is called a tetrad, right, where there's four of them in a, in, a, in a period of time. How completely unusual is this? It's not as unusual as people would think. There was a tetrad back in 2003, mm -hmm. and there'll be another one in 2032. The one that's occurring now is really kind of interesting because we, we here in Connecticut will be able to see at least parts of all four of the lunar eclipses. Now, uh, the minute there's anything like this, um, people start combing back through Nostradamus and any other set of predictions uh, that they can find. And uh, I first of all assume that if these so-called blood moon tetrads are not that unusual, they really shouldn't be any cause for people to believe that the zombie apocalypse is any more imminent than it is on any other given day. No, unfortunately. Oh, that would be Walking Dead spoilers, wouldn't it, Kyle? Uh, that would be, actually, yeah. That would, yes. Um, no, I mean, as I said, lunar eclipses happen all the time, and these tetrads occur occasionally. And I think part of it is that if you've ever seen a lunar eclipse, seeing that blood-red color on the moon is quite frightening. When I was a young child, I saw one my parents didn't think to tell me there was a lunar eclipse, and I got up in the middle of the night and saw one. And let's say that I really have a sympathy for how the ancient people were scared to death of these things. Um, any particular advice? I mean, let's assume that the cloud cover pulls off, because this is, as you say, New England. Any, first of all, I, this isn't the kind of thing where you can hurt your eyes or anything like that, no, right? No, perfectly safe. And any other particular advice about sort of how to watch it, where to watch it, where to look for it? Well, you'll be looking in the southern to southwest part of the sky, uh, obviously, if you have a pair of binoculars, that's great. You can see, see the moon a little more up close and personal, but you can do it with just your eyes. You can look out the window, any window that's facing in the right direction, or you can go outside and look up. And unlike a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse is more leisurely. So if you have to go back inside and get something to drink, you're not going to miss too much. Um, there's no pause button, though. Um, no, no pause button. No pause button. And, and so this is, is this specific to North America just because of, of the way it's lining up? Uh, this one in particular, North America, is in a really good position for this one. Mm -hmm. um, well, Christine Larson, it's great to know about all this stuff. Uh, it will enrich our evening, assuming that we get uh, the clouds. There's nothing we can do to make the clouds go all right. They're just going to be there, right? Uh, I don't have any magic button, do you? No, as 21st century media consumers, we're very accustomed to getting what we want when we want it. But that's the great thing about astronomy. Sometimes you just have to put up with uh, what's up there in the, in the heavens. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right. When we come back, uh, we are going to have a conversation about uh, Kevin Ollie, whose speech patterns are the occasion for at least one piece in the current. Uh, I've read other things as well. I want you, I hunt you down, underneath the, underneath the blood moon, chasing your dreams, your mind you lost it.
So basically, Creedence Clearwater Revival was right. I am definitely not going around tonight. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff doing the electric slide at weddings where nobody else is doing the electric slide, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, how our notion of public space changes after a tragedy like the Boston bombing. And now... Back to Colin. You know, she makes a good point, which is that a Creedence Clearwater revival in Bad Moon Rising, which first of all, for quite a few years, I thought was there's a bathroom on the right. And I was not alone in thinking that. But the other the exhortation is don't go around tonight. What does go around mean? I mean, does it mean you have to stay home or is there like a certain circuit you're not supposed to make? I mean, what is it? I don't, how do you even follow that advice? It would be good to know on the night of another blood eclipse. Joining us right now is uh, author Rand Cooper. He is an author, essayist, freelance writer, restaurant critic for The New York Times. Uh, he's here today because uh, he pointed out to me uh, an article written by Dan Ta- Tapper. Dan Tapper's uh, kind of a PR guy. I believe he's still with Sullivan and Lachane. Um, and, and this arises from actually something that has kind of been percolating for a while, which is that Kevin Ollie, the coach of the Yukon Husky men's team, uh, if you've listened to him speak, he, um, he uses language, I think, powerfully and vividly in a lot of ways, and more so than probably most coaches do. Um, but when he's doing that, I mean, his, in the images that he chooses uh, are often quite powerful and, and quite imaginative, too. But when he does this, he does... Um, often speak in a dialect, in sort of a, a black uh, dialect, an African-American kind of urban dialect. So uh, he'll say, uh, Ray Allen and me, we was drafted on the same day. Uh, he'd say, I, you know, the only difference is I don't play point guard no more. Uh, he, do, he commits those kinds of what we might call grammatical errors. And he's been called on it uh, by a number of sports writers around, and columnists around the country, in particular Phil Mushnick of the New York Post, who took a shot at Kevin Ollie? Uh, it seems to bother a lot of emailing folks, he says, emailing folks, uh, especially Connecticut taxpayers, that UConn's second season, UConn-educated and graduated basketball coach Kevin Ollie is so painfully deficient in fundamental spoken grammar. Uh, and Dan Tapper has uh, taken up Kevin Ollie's cause to defend him against this. So, uh, Rand Cooper, you were the one who pointed this essay out to me and had some interesting things to say about it, so I'm going to hand it off to you right now. I do want to say this is the kind of thing people do tend to have opinions about. So our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Well, my goal is not really to have an opinion about this, but just to outline some of the, to me, very interesting questions that it raises. And I will say about a week ago, um, I, I met briefly with an acquaintance who is a huge supporter of, of UConn basketball, has been in, actually involved in various ways with the program for years, loves Kevin Ollie. Um, and and we were both enthusing about what was going on with the team, and the guy said to me, "Man, do I do I love Ali? I love everything he's doing." But then he then he said almost sort of um, sotto voce, he said, um, "But I just I just wish he didn't sound like that." It 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 and he winced a little, and he said, "It's it's just a little cringe making for someone who represents the University of Connecticut, who's a graduate of University of Connecticut, to say things like, "Hey, we ain't got no regrets." Mm-hmm. Um, and what I liked about Dan Tapper's piece. Is that, and Dan Tapper is, uh, as you said, he's in PR. My friend was saying this is terrible PR for UConn. Dan Tapper's piece argues very persuasively that Kevin Ollie is great PR for UConn, including the way he talks. Not despite the way he talks, but including it. And he offers a closely reasoned defense of this. And among other things, he points to certain homespun maxims 
that uh, that Kevin Ollie uses, like take the stairs, not the escalator, plant the seeds for success. Uh, and he says, uh, and then he traces Ollie's background. He says his voice and inflection is that of someone raised in Texas and in an impoverished urban area. We are a nation of accents, from the dropped R's of New England to the clip patterns of the northern states to the draw of the deep south. It means nothing in the way of education or intelligence or thoughtfulness or how effectively one communicates. And he says Kevin Ollie, including the way he speaks, is to be celebrated. Um, and I, I find this is generally a very polarizing issue. And there are a lot of people who, th- who think it's simply and obviously the case that no one who has attained that position should be speaking so ungrammatically. Dan Tapper's arguments are very persuasive otherwise, and they, they put Kevin Ollie in the tradition of sort of American homespun rhetoric. But to me, and this is to move on to the question that it raises, is really a question about the uses, the purposes, and the limitations of standard English. And that's what Dan Tapper is really arguing against. He's arguing against the idea that everyone who reaches a position of, of, uh, of authority, uh, attainment, and accomplishment has to sound more or less the same way. And this is an enduring cultural linguistic argument. It's not merely an American argument. And it's certainly not merely about racist charges, which, which Dan Tapper says the New York Post uh, guy took an unprovoked and racially charged shot. But if you go to, for instance, in, in the U.K., the argument about so-called BBC English mm-hmm. um, has been raging for years. Should all BBC announcers sound like they were, they were fabricated in the same factory? Or could regional dialects, which in, which in the U.K. vary even more greatly than ours do, should a Welshman be on the BBC sounding you know, like he's no, from absolutely deep not. Or, or, or Scotland? So we have – I would put this in, in the context uh, of that larger argument – and I would just say two other things. I would push back a little bit if you want to make the opposite argument against Dan Tapper. And, and one counterpoint might be to note that Kevin Ollie got his job, his great job, by virtue of a number of things. One, he had a fabulous and very hardworking NBA career. He was a celebrated star at this university, and he was anointed by Jim Calhoun. In other words, he was not a guy who was trudging from interview to interview, carrying his CV with him and trying to convince an interviewer to hire me. Now, most of the people who play basketball at UConn are not going to be in the NBA. They are someday going to be that person trudging from interview to interview. And one can argue coherently that those people may well be substantially inconvenienced if they speak in their interview the way Kevin Ollie speaks. So there are always. It might even be fair to ask whether at Sullivan and Lachine, where Dan Tapper works, they would hire a candidate who said, I don't want to write that kind of press release no more. It's an excellent question. And, Colin, when you had the show about language a few weeks ago and you had the guy, the brilliant guy from Marion Webster on, who, by the way, kicked my butt in a language contest in West Hartford a few years ago. I'll never forget that. Um, uh, uh, when, when you got him to try to argue, or when a, when a caller did, to argue for a very prescriptive approach to grammar, all he would say is, look, I will tell you that if you use nonstandard grammar in situation X, Y, or Z, you're liable to, to run into some trouble. So there's a strong practical argument to be made. And then there are some, we can get in these if you want, I think some cultural arguments to be made for standard language. All right. Let's grab a call or two. A lot of people did call in about this. Here's George and Avon. Hi, George. Um, I, I guess I come down on the side of he's a, he's a representative of UConn. UConn is an institute of higher learning. And um, it just it, it made me embarrassed. Um, I also wanted to say that the way that the players acted at the presentation ceremony made me embarrassed a little bit too um, and they, they just 
really didn't seem to act like mature winners. And so um, I just hope for better things from UConn. I didn't really have any problem with how the players acted. I thought they acted pretty much the way I would have acted at the age of 20 or 21 in the middle of something very exciting. I didn't see any untoward behavior. Uh, or, uh, But anyway, you know, just to go back to the, the, the thing about whether it's embarrassing the way that he talk, uh, talks, I, I would just want to bring up two issues, and then we have some more calls here. One of them is what's now called code switching, something Gene Demby writes about a lot for NPR. I mean, President Obama, uh, upon buying some kind of food from an African-American vendor, was offered change back from his money, and he looked at the vendor and said, no, we straight. Um, now, President Obama knows how to speak the king's English when he wants to. And so this is called code switching, that in this environment, it made sense for President Obama, who also has been a community organizer in urban settings, to talk to that man the way that he talks. And so I actually wonder, I, I watched a bunch of Kevin Ollie interviews and press conferences to get ready for this. I didn't have time to really immerse myself. But I had a little bit of a sense that this is something that he, he's m- somewhat in control of and can turn it on and off a little bit. I watched him get through one fairly lengthy press conference w- without ever doing anything like what we're talking about now. I watched other interviews where he was just lapsing into that kind of speech all the time. I, I don't know how intentional it is, but there is a thing called code switching where you make a decision about how you're going to speak. This is a huge point. I haven't seen enough of Kevin Ollie to uh, to conclude whether he's capable of that. My, certainly my, my impression is, is no. Um, certainly nothing approaching what Obama can do. But this multiple this twin tracking or multiple tracking of one's language is sort of the magic trick of identity that assimilation uh, that immigrant groups have have pulled off in American life and it bears interest for for, for many generations it bears interesting relationship to one's own uh, identity and and, uh, and and Obama is is a fascinating example some people respect him for this and some people mistrust him for this of being able to switch uh, depending on his audience, and uh, and to sound however he needs to sound. Now, there's a chameleon-like quality to that, and there's a there's a great adept facility with language that you have to have in order to have that. The great writers who've written uh, books in 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 regional colloquial language have always been people who, of course, first mastered standard English and then decide for artistic purposes how they're going to depart from it. So that ability, one, to operate from a base of standard English and then deviate from it strategically, artistically, for whatever your purpose is, is, you know, part of the, the, the fascination of language in American culture. Let me grab a call from Jim in Canton. Hi, Jim. Hi. You're on the air. I'm uh, not from Connecticut, didn't go to UConn, so not a big UConn fan, but I, uh, I think Kevin Ollie does engage in this, as, you, as it's called, code switching a bit. I recall watching, I think it was the second round, NCAA game, and the fact that I can't remember shows that I'm not a huge fan. UConn was down at halftime. Kevin Ollie was coming off the court, and, you know, as they do, they do the short interviews with the coaches, and normally the coaches utter some vacuous banalities, and Kevin Ollie, very calmly, self-confident, but not in an arrogant way, said, we're going to come back and win this game. And And I was impressed that he had the confidence in himself and in his team to make that kind of a comment in a very calm manner. I, I was impressed by it. Well, I, th- I sort of certainly, first of all, um, you know, Phil Mushnick is the guy from the New York Post. You brought this up. Although, as I say, as I looked around today, I found some other places in markets far away from Connecticut in which uh, note has been has been taken of the way that Kevin Ollie talks, which is a little bit different from the way most 
high-level college basketball uh, coaches talk. Uh, and just two quick things about that. One of them is right now in Connecticut, the surest way to be tarred and feathered is to say anything negative about Kevin Ollie. Everybody, for pretty good reasons, worships the guy right now. Uh, and uh, and it just, you know, being the skunk at the garden party uh, isn't really going to work for a lot of people. But I think the other thing, Rand, that I'm wondering about, when people are troubled by this way that he talks – Really, we are talking very specifically about race because, for example, I mean, think of all the other high-level college basketball coaches. Imagine Lefty Drizel in a post-game interview or, for that matter, imagine Jim Calhoun, who doesn't misuse grammar in a particular way but speaks in this kind of Joycean babble that's almost impossible at times to parse or even extract the exact meaning from, transcribing Calhoun when, he's, uh, was, when he was in one of his kind of high-energy rants was really a challenge to even figure out what the sentence structure was that he was engaging in, peppering it constantly with the phrase, quite frankly, quite frankly, quite frankly, which he used kind of the way people use commas, just sprinkled all the way through. And I'm not picking on Jim Calhoun. Most college basketball coaches or many college basketball coaches mangle English in one way or another. There's something special about doing it in sort of an urban black idiom. Well, first of all, as, as, as the other caller implied, there's also every situation, every situation in which uh, someone speaks situationally with all certain limitations constitutes a sort of code. It's often the code of athletes and of coaches to say, as the caller implied, essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. And so when someone breaks that code, as Gino Oriama often does, and as Kevin Ollie does, it's, it's refreshing. No matter how they couch it grammatically, it's a refreshing transgression of the normal code of, of saying nothing. I agree with you, Colin, that many of these comments do have a racial tint, and that's because uh, so many of these kinds of issues do have racial, racial axes to them. As you know, I lived in Germany for a number of years. Helmut Kohl was the chancellor when I was there. As in Britain, in Germany, there is really a codified high language, Hochdeutsch, that uh, is a, forms a standard expectation that anyone who's educated or in power is expected to speak. Helmut Kohl was famous as the first German chancellor who, as it was said, cannot speak high German. Now, he was, on the one hand, mocked and mimicked for this. But at the same time, in a roundabout way, he was also he was also loved for it, and there was a great ambivalence about that because, on the one hand, um, it was seen as sort of uh, embarrassing in in much this way. His accent was this lilting, bucolic one from a remote part of Germany, a lovely part of Germany, and and people impersonated him. But at the same time, in a demotic kind of way, he was felt to be therefore closer to the people and. They embraced him for it. So there, there is always this ambivalence, and I think we, we see that uh, with Kevin Ollie. Let me grab a call from Prasad in Avon. Hi, you're on the air. Uh, hi. Um, I was wondering if there was a distinction being made between uh, – you talked about code switching before, but his verbal uh, way he talks versus writing or you know stuff like that. There's a distinction being made in this whole conversation between those two. I think a distinction can be made. I don't know that we have a clear enough example of how Kevin Ali writes as to uh, sort of be uh, in order to be able to apply it to him. Uh, but certainly, the way people speak and the way they write, they're just huge dichotomies. The the other thing is that Kevin Ali um, is is a basketball player and a recent basketball player, and he speaks the way his basketball players players speak. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting dimension in that too. There has typically been, and not only for white coaches, but if you think about the great black coaches like John Thompson, for instance, there has always been a separation, usually in age, in in some certain ways in educational attainment, 
and and also in diction and 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 Ali has has effaced and and erased that and in, in some ways it certainly brings him closer to his players and puts him right in their milieu. That might be hard for some coaches because it doesn't give them that distance into which authority is naturally built. With him, it seems to be working pretty pretty well. Yeah, I, I do think that um, if he's doing some code switching, if he's at least leaning into this a little bit more heavy, heavily, this style of speech more heavily on some occasions than he does on other occasions, it may have to do with exactly what you talked about. This was an occasion, this season was an occasion that demanded a sense of solidarity. You had a team that had been punished the year before, uh, the t- a team that was coming back not only athletically but academically, improving its program, but at the same time it lost two players to the NBA, it lost two more players who transferred out uh, in order to a- avoid the sanctions. Um, he really sort of had to ga- gather his players around some kind of central core, some kind of nucleus of enthusiasm. And I wonder if in talking that way, not using university speak, but using basketball speak, he was doing a little bit of code switching and, and trying to emphasize his solidarity with them. You know, there, Colin, there are some, and, and again, I could sit here and, and, and make a, a pretty compelling list of arguments for, for the other side of this, but let's just draw this out. There are many things, many ways in which one can be inspiring uh, to, to other people. And some of them have to do with language, but most, but most do not. And, and the list of things that Kevin Ollie has done, both in his career and as coach, by way of overcoming adversity, showing perseverance, and really modeling, to use the word again and again for his players, important life qualities, makes him a pretty superlative figure as, as a coach. And I think he wants Shabazz Napier to be able to use the kind of language that he uses, the kind of diction that he uses, but also the other kind as well. And if you listen to Napier right. and a lot of those other players speak, they're not going to have a hard time getting through a job interview. They can talk the way that they need to, when they need to. And I think that's very important to Kevin Ollie. This is very important. We have to go. Thanks to Rand Cooper. Thanks to Jen Dahl. Thanks to Christine Larson. We'll be back tomorrow with a more serious show about the way public attitudes get transformed by disasters and tragedies like the Boston Marathon, which will have been one year prior. Using these words for the bettering of mankind. Yes, it's I who's choosing these words that are renewed to me, sifting thoughts brutally to straighten up my I'm Kyone Wolf, and I would just like to say, may your wedding end in fewer violent murders than any wedding in Game of Thrones. I'm sorry, spoiler alert.